Pienowicz syndrome was mainly caused by infections for centuries, but is now primarily caused by malignancies? The answer is Superior vena cava syndrome, or SVC syndrome, which was first described in 1757 by William Hunter, about a patient who died of an aortic aneurysm secondary to syphilis. Now imagine if the veins were pipes, and if there is a blockage in one of the pipes. When the flow backs up because of a blockage, it causes backflow, leading to organ damage. Today, our patient has SVC syndrome, and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Backed Up, an Approach to SVC Syndrome. All right, time for a minute physiology. The superior vena cava is a blood vessel that drains the head, neck, upper extremities, and upper thorax. It is located in the upper mediastinum and drained by the right and left brachiocephalic veins. It drains into the right atrium, and the SVC carries about one-third of the venous return supply. The thin wall of the SVC relative to other structures such as the aorta and trachea predisposes it first to mass effect. Obstruction of the vena cava leads to reduction of venous return. The clinical manifestations of SVC syndrome occur as the venous pressures lead to impaired organ perfusion proximal to the obstruction. This manifests in edema proximal to the obstruction. If the obstruction impairs circulatory return to the right atrium, hemodynamic compromise may occur. The upper body venous pressures increase temporarily until collateral circulation develops, a process which usually takes weeks. Therefore, the acuity of obstruction also underlies the severity of symptoms as it may outpace the body's circulatory compensation. The cause of SVC obstruction is divided into malignant and non-malignant causes. Malignant causes are the most common etiologies for SVC syndrome in the modern era. SVC syndrome can be the first presentation of a new malignancy. The malignancy usually causes external compression and exerts a mass effect from an enlarging structure, such as from the primary tumor lymph node, and includes hematologic malignancies, for instance, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, specifically diffuse large B-cell lymphoma or lymphoblastic lymphoma, lung cancers, and mediastinal tumors, for instance, ethymoma or germ cell tumors. Lung cancer is one of the most common causes of SVC syndrome comprising nearly 75% of all malignant SVC syndromes. Small cell lung cancer, compared to non-small cell lung cancer, has a greater risk of developing SVC syndrome, owing to the much higher growth rate, more mediastinal predilection, and rarely even through direct invasion of the superior vena cava. Severe SVC syndrome from a mass effect may also obstruct other nearby critical structures, such as the airway or the heart. Non-malignant causes include thrombus, associated with an intravascular device such as a central venous catheter or cardiac devices, or pulmonary emboli. Of course, a thrombus is also possible in association with malignancy. Fibrosing mediastinitis from etiologies such as tuberculosis, syphilis, and mycotic infections, vasculitis, and radiation fibrosis is another non-malignant cause. 
All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. When you go to assess someone with a suspicion of SVC syndrome, remember your ABCs. Pay close attention to the patient's airway, circulation, and any evidence of decreased level of consciousness. Once you're sure that your patient is stable and in the appropriate monitored setting, you can then move on to your assessment. The goal of the assessment is first to determine the acuity and extent of symptoms. Symptoms are considered acute if they occurred less than two weeks, subacute if between two to four weeks, and chronic if greater than four weeks. The most common symptoms are dyspnea, facial edema and plethora, which worsens when supine, non-productive cough, voice hoarseness, dysphagia, arm swelling, and chest pain. Rare but alarm features include cerebral edema with symptoms such as visual changes, headaches, or altered level of consciousness, laryngeal edema with severe respiratory distress or strider, or obstructive shock. Your history should assess for any clues about the underlying etiology. Make sure to also ask for any constitutional symptoms such as unintentional weight loss, night sweats, or unexplained fevers. A pancoast tumor can manifest with SVC syndrome symptoms, including arm and hand pain or weakness, dysphonia, or Horner syndrome with meiosis, ptosis, and anhydrosis. Pay close attention to any prior history of malignancy or risk factors for thoracic malignancies such as smoking history, as well as any recent history of instrumentation such as central venous catheters or pacemakers. On your physical exam, look for signs of SVC obstruction, including facial and arm edema, facial plethora, indwelling devices, and dilatation of any neck or chest wall veins. Assess the presence of strider and tracheal displacement. A screening neurological exam will help determine if there is any evidence of cerebral edema. The Pemberton sign can be elicited by having the patient forward flex both arms until they are above the head and is considered positive if, after a minute, the patient develops facial edema, plethora, respiratory distress, or cyanosis. Signs concerning for an underlying malignancy include any upper body lymphadenopathy, clubbing, and signs of a pancose tumor. Examine for any other features that may point towards an alternative diagnosis, such as Cushing syndrome or heart failure. A grading system based on the severity of symptoms starts at grade 0, where patients are asymptomatic, to grade 4, where there is significant cerebral edema, laryngeal strider, or hemodynamic compromise, and finally, grade 5, which is death. On to our workup. Always start with a CBC, metabolic panel, and coagulation parameters, which can help with a differential diagnosis as well as prepare for any interventions. A chest X-ray can be done to help easily assess for any other competing diagnoses. The chest X-ray findings are nonspecific for SVC syndrome, which can include pleural effusion and a widened mediastinum, but it can also help rule out common etiologies that we discussed before that are on your differential. The key investigation will be a CT of the chest and neck with contrast to diagnose the SVC syndrome. CT has the advantage of showing the location of the obstruction, severity of obstruction, associated thrombus, and any extrinsic etiologies that are associated with the obstruction. 
Magnetic resonance venography, or MR venography, is an alternative based on local accessibility for patients with contraindications to contrast dye. The clinical presentation and imaging will likely be enough information to distinguish whether the SVC obstruction is related to malignancy. For stable patients without an established diagnosis of malignancy, or if the presentation is atypical for malignancy, a biopsy of the mass is imperative before any anti-cancer treatment is implemented, as the definitive treatment is tumor-directed therapy. Accessible peripheral or mediastinal lymph nodes can be helpful for a biopsy. Alternatively, if the mass is accessible via percutaneous CT-guided biopsy or endoscopic ultrasound-directed method, that can also be considered. If malignancy is highly suspicious and the type of malignancy is suspected, consider pursuing staging investigations during the patient's admission. Let's talk about treatment. There are two general pathways along the treatment of SBC syndrome, the acute management of the obstruction and the treatment of the underlying cause. If there is life-threatening or severe obstruction, ensure that the patient is in the appropriate monitored setting. Protection of the airway may be necessary. Once the patient's ABCs have been addressed, an urgent assessment by interventional radiology is key for an endovascular stent. Obstruction management may differ if there is a clot. For instance, consideration of catheter-directed thrombolysis, mechanical thrombectomy, and systemic anticoagulation may be pursued first. Patients are usually anticoagulated in the short term if stented. However, the role of long-term anticoagulation or antiplatelet therapy remains unclear. A discussion with your local thrombosis and interventional radiology colleagues will be helpful, as the management may need a multidisciplinary approach. Emergency transfer of a patient to a facility with the required expertise may be warranted. If the patient is stable, supportive management includes raising the head of the bed to improve venous return. Diuretics can be considered if there is pulmonary edema. However, it is unlikely to significantly alter the hemodynamics related to the SVC syndrome. Steroids can be considered for patients with laryngeal edema who are receiving emergent radiotherapy for airway obstruction. If there is no histological confirmation of suspected malignancy, steroids should be used cautiously as it may obscure the diagnosis for some malignancies, such as lymphoma. Treatment of the underlying cause is the definitive treatment of the obstruction. The focus of this podcast will be on the most common cause of SVC syndrome, malignancy. Now, histological diagnosis is key as it will inform which oncological treatment modality will be most important. Consulting your local radiation oncology and medical oncology team for help may ensure that you most rapidly and appropriately get the diagnosis. Understanding the pathology helps gauge the radiotherapy or chemotherapy sensitivity of the cancer. Patients with an incurable disease with a low burden of symptoms may be observed closely instead of immediate treatment. Radiotherapy is not a substitute for endovascular stenting in an unstable patient, as the effect of radiation is often seen in a few days with maximal effect in a few weeks. For lung cancers, most are radiosensitive. Chemotherapy is the modality of choice for small cell lung cancer, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, or germ cell tumors as they are chemosensitive. 
The combination with radiotherapy can be considered as well. Surgery is not often performed due to the high morbidity and mortality, but can be considered for a thymoma or thymic carcinoma as these tumors are both chemotherapy and radiotherapy insensitive. Survival in patients with malignancy-associated SVC syndrome depends on the underlying cancer. For example, in non-small cell lung cancer, SVC syndrome is a poor prognostic marker with an estimated median survival of six months. Time for a medicine minute. A 2021 meta-analysis on endovascular stenting indicated that endovascular treatment resulted in an average 92% success rate in complete or partial resolution of SVC syndrome symptoms, with an average complication rate of 7.5%. The most common major complications included instant restenosis and acute obstruction, thrombosis, stent migration, cardiac tamponade, pulmonary edema, and respiratory failure. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Backed Up, an Approach to SVC Syndrome. This episode was written by Dr. Samuel Chan, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. John Goffin, medical oncologist, and Dr. Andrew Chung, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Alison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Alison Lai and executively produced by Alison Lai, Sarah Morali, and Leah Karianopoulos. Theme song by Lakshmi Vizantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic and resources on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you again soon.